In essentials, black and white. In non-essentials, welcome to episode 44 of What We Believe and Why with pastor, author, and teacher, Dr. George Byron Koch. We concluded our discussion last time with a brief introduction into a faith approach regarding non-essentials that could be labeled less binary or dialectic or black and white. This approach encourages us to wrestle with competing concepts, to get benefits from all of them, to learn from their nuances, rather than declaring winners and losers. Continuing that thought, here's George. This is the rabbinic way of hearing and applying Scripture, and it is fundamentally Christian. Jesus lived it. Paul lived it. But we lost it somewhere in the transporting of the gospel from Israel to the rest of the Greek-speaking Hellenized world. We adapted a way of doing philosophy that was foreign to the tradition of the faith from Abraham to Paul, but that grew dominant in the church over the two millennia that followed. What was begun as a convenient way to explain the Son of God to the Greek philosophers became instead a Greek philosophy in its own right. The faith in God was turned into concepts The revelation diced up into pieces and put into an organized categorical array with patterns of syllogisms, major premises, minor premises, conclusions, inferences, deduction, induction, concepts. Worse, we ended up worshiping these concepts, promoting them and defending them instead of worshiping, loving, and having a relationship with the one who made us. The flaw in this is partly in the manufacturing of concepts at all, but even more so in the insistence that we choose one over the other and hurt, physically or verbally, those who do not choose as we do. We discard wisdom when we do this. But there is hope. And there is a means to unity. Back to my illustration about women in ministry as an example of how we should approach most such issues of the faith. I once watched as two scholars each presented papers on women in ministry before a gathering of religious leaders. One defended the male-only priesthood and mustered capable arguments from Scripture tradition, and history. It was quite an impressive and thorough presentation done with a persuasive and non-belligerent spirit. The other stood and presented the case for women as priests. It was similarly thorough and also drew its arguments from scripture, tradition, and history. It showed remarkable insight into human culture and God's interactions with it over time. It was competent, collegial, and persuasive. Both presenters were prepared. They were respectful of each other as believers. Wisdom came from each. Insights and nuances 
were revealed by both. God's light shone from each on the topic before them, though they disagreed. When they were done, some of the gathered leaders present asked, Are we going to vote now? They assumed that after debate, proper doctrine and polity for leadership in the church would be decided by majority rule. The most senior leader who had called the meeting said, No, not only were they not going to vote, they never would. They were not going to choose one over the other. Adjacent, both would stand. Some accepted this with equanimity and even joy. Others were clearly agitated. One side likely had more supporters than the other and hoped this would be the moment when they could stop the other side and at last win. The wisdom of the moderator prevailed, though not without considerable dismay from those who thought this would be the moment of their victory. I recall this incident because it illustrates yet again the flaw in our approach to God. Somehow we have gotten stuck on the notion that in a given instance, only one metaphor, only one description, only one nuance, only one understanding of God is acceptable and the others must be suppressed. This is a thoroughly bad idea. We have to stop acting this way and not only tolerate each other's approaches, but protect them, safeguard each other's views, not just because it's polite and collegial, but because it is more complete and true. More of the Spirit of God is allowed to breathe through us when we do not shut ourselves off from each other. Now let's define the essentials. I've been consistent throughout this book in not suggesting that believing anything is okay or that every religious idea is equally valid. There are essentials. This will bring some howls from every quarter, but those essentials of the faith are not in the traditions or any of the concepts so dear to each denomination and local church. Those things may define movements and doctrines. They may help us understand and live the faith, but they do not define a Christian. Salvation, sanctification, and glorification are the essentials of life in Christ, of covenant. Review that material on salvation, sanctification, and glorification, if you would. These three are the essence and foundation of all of which our relationship with God consists. They are life in Christ, where we have union with God. It is where we must have unity with one another. They are our common roots. And now, the non-essentials. And again, howls probably from every quarter. Most of what we reject each other over are non-essentials in the most important sense. They are not required for salvation, 
not required for sanctification, and not required for glorification. These three can proceed with or without them. The non-essentials are not required by covenant, by life in Christ. For any element of doctrine, tradition, polity, or practice, if salvation is possible without it, if sanctification can proceed without it, if glorification can come without it, it is non-essential. It may be useful, but if it is not required, if it is not an if and only if of a life in Christ, of his covenant, it is non-essential. It may be valuable and important in our doctrine, tradition, polity, or practice, but it is non-essential if it is not required for life in him. Now, this may be hugely disturbing to contemplate. It upends much that our lives have focused upon, but it is key to recognizing the true unity we have with other followers of Jesus Christ. In spite of our huge differences of religious concepts, of doctrine and practice, we are rooted together in the essentials, in life, in Him. We vary widely in the way we explain and manifest the life that flows out from these roots, but that doesn't mean one of us is rooted in Him and the other is not. This singular revelation should allow us to realize at last the unity for which Jesus prayed. We began with this in chapter 1. We repeat it again here, that extraordinary quote from the 17th century Lutheran Peter Meiderlin, who said, We would be in the best shape if we kept in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in both charity. The essential is absolutely required. Salvation, sanctification, glorification, life in Christ, covenant, our roots in him. The non-essential, profoundly important perhaps, especially in our tradition, highly regarded, perhaps even a part of how I am sanctified, But if I can live my life in Christ without that tradition, without that concept, without that, if I can still have life in Christ without it, then it is non-essential. And we should hold it lightly. We should be able to have relations with others who hold other things also lightly, adjacent, welcome their insights, rather than being trapped in a war where we dismiss and despise each other simply because we disagree. We must learn to live the unity that Christ prayed for. The Miterlin quote is once again appropriate. We'll head to a break, and when we return, another practical application for the need for unity, a topic that stirs up controversy in many faith traditions. We'll be back with that discussion in just a few minutes. Do stay with us. (music) 